Now for a message, first one will be from Mr. Reg Noland. It is entitled, All Herald the King. Okay, now, All Herald the King. As we approach the fall holiday season, we reflect on the sequence of holy days in relationship as revelation and rehearsal of God's plan of salvation for mankind. Now, before I came into the church, I never heard of the holy days. They were something completely foreign to me, especially the last great day. I've heard of some of the others, but not... We realize that they, like much of prophecy, are dual in nature. They have both type and anti-type, apparently except for one. Further, there is a wonderful, wonderful parallelism uh, between the first three and the last three holy days. For example, both Passover and Atonement picture Christ's sacrifice. The days of unleavened bread and tabernacles both illustrate uh, extended periods of dwelling with the Rock of Ages. The first fruits in Pentecost and the, uh, and the last great day both describe a gift from heaven. The pivotal holy day, trumpets, seems to be a fulcrum around which these two sets of holy days are balanced. Yet trumpets is the one day that we probably have the greatest trouble with. For we don't know with certainty what the two silver trumpets mean, nor do we have a clear antitype, even though we are confident that the type is the return of Christ at the last trump. Today, I would like to make an argument that the antitype is Christ's first advent to earth, that is to say his birth, despite the fact that there are several ministers in the church of God with whom I respect who want to place his birth on the first day of the tabernacles. They do so on the basis of verses to, um, where the word dwell comes from the Greek and Hebrew words that could be translated as to tabernacle with, such as in Revelation 21, uh, verses 2 through 4. One, uh, yeah, 2 through 4. Uh, let's read those. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God uh, himself shall be, uh, be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. They also place his birthday on the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, uh, upon the conception, based upon the conception that John the Baptist and Zachariah's ministerial role in the course of Abijah. Then calculate Christ's birthday uh, would, he, uh, would occur retroactively. But calculating gestation periods is an inexact science at best, even today, because so many factors can influence uh, pregnancies. A 15-day difference between expected birth date and actual birth date is quite common. Indeed, the first-time mothers, uh, first mothers often deliver two weeks early, not, nothing out of the ordinary. That said, I find the placement of Christ's birthday on tabernacles quite problematic logistically and typologically, as I'll illustrate uh, shortly. But first, we have to refute the common notion of his current birthday that's popular in the world. This is the worldview. Each year, millions of professing worldly Christians believe that they are honoring Christ by celebrating his birthday 
on December 25th. But we know that Christ's birthday was not on Christmas or anywhere near it. And we can prove it from the pages of the Bible with only a very few minutes and with three, any of three arguments. Three arguments are the crucifixion argument, the census argument, and the shepherd's argument. So let's listen to each one of those. I know, uh, we know that Christ's ministry was cut off in the middle of the week, three and a half days, as predicted by the prophets in Daniel 9 and Isaiah 53. Uh, following a year-for-a-day principle of Numbers 14 and um, for, Numbers 14:34 and Ezekiel 4:6, um, then his ministry lasted for three and a half years or 42 months. We know he began his ministry when he was about 30. That's in Luke 3, 23. Okay. Thus he was 33 and a half years old when he was executed. If he was executed in the spring on Passover, then his birthday would have to be six months earlier in the fall, not in midwinter. That's the argument uh, that is the crucifixion argument. The census argument. The census taken at the time of Christ's birth, which caused Mary and Joseph to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, was a census of registration, ultimately for the purpose of taxation, which required the respondents to declare the names and members of their household, their place of residence, their property, and their wealth. If Jesus were not born and circumcised until the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, then he would not have been included as a member of Joseph's household for nearly a full year. No intelligent ruler is going to disrupt his people's growing and harvesting seasons of productivity, which occurred during the summer, for such actions would simply lessen their income and hence lessen government income from taxation. Further, the traditional numbering of the people of Israel, the census, occurred on the Day of Atonement. That's important. The numbering of the people occurred on the Day of Atonement. All circumcised males were numbered among the tribes. Males were not circumcised until eight days after their birth. Let's find the rule for that. The rule for that is Genesis 17:12. Genesis 17:12. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations. He that is born in his house or bought with money of, his strange, of any stranger, which is not thy seed. And then we see that Jesus, is, and Jesus, Joseph, and Mary are obeying that rule in Luke 2, 21 and 22. And when the eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of an angel uh, before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Okay. Thus, if Jesus were to have been numbered among the Israelites in the tribe of Judah during his first year of life, he would have had to have been born at least eight days before the Day of Atonement, not five days after on the Feast of Tabernacles. Hence, the trip to Bethlehem occurred after the spring planting and after the late summer harvest, but before the fall rainy season set in, the onset of which occurred around Atonement. For in Mediterranean climates, the um, period from mid-October to mid-March is the rainy season, plagued with storms and unsettled weather, as is suggested by Paul's concern about the weather uh, and its effect on a boat back over in Acts 27, uh, 9 through 12. Let's look at those. 
Now, when much time was spent, uh, this is Acts 27, 9 through 12. Now, when much time was spent and when the sailing was now dangerous because the fast, that fast is the atonement, was now already passed, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage shall be, uh, be with hurt and much damage, not only uh, of the lading and the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which are spoken by Paul. So, the rainy season begins about the time of Day of Atonement and continues until about Passover. That's the census argument. The shepherd argument. Since shepherd, this is the one I think is most convincing. Since shepherds were watching their flocks by night, on the night that Christ was born, the flocks were in the field. Let's read this account in Luke 2, verses 8 through 18. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. What had happened is it was so very, very dark, and suddenly there's this bright light that appears. So wouldn't you be startled as well? Okay. Um, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let's go into Bethlehem and see this thing which shall come to pass, um, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told to them concerning the child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things that were told to them by the shepherd. But again, mid-October to mid-March is the rainy season in the Mediterranean climates. So by tradition, according to Clark's commentary on Luke 2, all the herdsmen bringing in the animals to the shelter before the uh, fast of atonement. This is a direct quote from Clark's commentary. It was the custom among Jews to send out the sheep into the desert and among, uh, about the Passover and bring them uh, home at the commencement of the first rain. During the time they were out, the shepherds were, uh, watched them night and day as the Passover occurred in the spring and the first rain uh, began early in the month of Marchavon, which is Tishri uh, in uh, the sacred calendar, which uh, answers to in part of our answers to, to part of our October November. We find the sheep were kept in the, out in the open country during the whole of the summer. And as these shepherds had not yet brought in home their flocks, it is a presumptive argument that October had not yet commenced. And that, consequently, our Lord was not born on the 25th of December when no flocks were out in the fields by night. On the very ground, this, uh, on this very ground, the nativity in December should be given up. 
the feeding of the flocks by night in the field is a chronological fact which casts considerable light upon this disputed point. Okay, so if the sheep were out in the field, it couldn't be winter. Okay. Thus, if the sheep were in the field at the night of his birth, the day had to occur prior to the day of atonement. The shepherds were startled by the brightness of the glory of God that came upon came with the angels. So it was probably a very dark night, perhaps a new moon, which occurs on the first day of each month. Therefore, although we cannot know the date with certainty, we can be reasonably confident that his birth had to occur prior to atonement and hence prior to the first day of tabernacles. Conclusion, his birth occurred somewhere between mid-September and mid-October, not mid-winter. So now, which day? Scripture does not reveal the date of Jesus' birth. Uh, probably to protect it against astrological interpretation. So any assertions here about it is pure speculation. If I had a cowbell with me right now, I would ring it. Okay. Uh, further, Bible scholars uh, cannot agree on the date, for there's at least one Bible scholar ready and willing to defend nearly every month of the year as the date of his birth. But our God is not the God of confusion. Although not necessarily so, it is reasonable to assume that since God is not the author of chaos and confusion, but of order and purpose, that an event of such magnitude should occur on a significant day, such as a high holy day, although it doesn't have to. Although it doesn't have to. 1 Corinthians 14.33 is that statement that God is not the author of uh, confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Clearly, our God is greater than any of us mere human beings. And to paraphrase the psalmist, his ways are far, as far above us as our ways are above the amoeba. Yet, he is not some unfathomable mystery, as the Catholics would have us believe. Rather, he is a God who wants to reveal himself as a father would want to make himself known to his children. We see this voluntary self-revelation in his word and in his holy days, which is the key to understanding his purpose for us. So let's examine the type and anti-type that God has revealed to us in the sequence of his holy days. And then we will discover some amazing, I think, uh, facts and parallels. Okay, this is the blank chart. And I'm going to fill in here systematically the uh, anti-type and type. As I said, trumpets is the pivotal day, and there is a wonderful parallelism between the first three and the last three. So, the, for the first one, the antitype for the Passover is uh, the Passover lamb and salvation from the uh, 10th plague <coughs> sorry, in Egypt. The type is Christ, our Passover, and salvation from eternal death. That makes sense. Notice that uh, the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, has a parallel thing. Then the anti-type, the high priest and the two goats, prefiguring the dual role of Christ as the redeeming sacrifice for our sins and the bearer of our sins to carry them far away. Yearly, this pictures yearly forgiveness of sins for the nation of Israel. The type is the ultimate forgiveness, Christ's sacrifice and atoning blood covering all of our sins. See how those are parallel? They both have to do with the sacrifice of Christ. 
Then we have the days of unleavened bread. This is manna, physical bread from heaven given to us in the wilderness uh, during our 40 days of wandering. And we have at the um, uh, type for it, Christ's broken body as the life-giving spiritual bread from heaven. Then we have the Feast of Tabernacles. Dwelling in temporary booths in the wilderness of Sinai was the antitype. The type is dwelling with Christ during his millennial reign on earth. Pentecost. Pentecost and the last great day are both gifts from heaven. The antitype was the law given to us at Mount si on Mount Sinai. And the type uh, was the Holy Spirit given us tongues of uh, as cloven tongues of fire, a law written on our hearts. Then for the Simchat uh, Torah, the last great day, Jesus is pictured as living waters uh, in 7.37.9, and uh, the dead are temporarily resurrected and being seen walking around by many. That was amazing. I had never heard of the last great day before I came into this church. The type is Jesus as the fountain of life. Notice how that parallels to the living waters. And he is the second resurrection uh, the second resurrection, which is Ezekiel 7 and the Valley of Dry Bones in New Jerusalem, that whole man. Okay? Now, let's go to the next one. We have a clear type for the Day of Trumpets. That's the Christ's return for, uh, at, the last day of, at the last trumpet. Notice again the wonderful parallelism between the, two, the set above and the set below. Notice also the similarity in kind between the type and the anti-type. That's important to realize. But do you notice something missing? For each of the holy days, we have a clear type and an anti-type except for one. The day of trumpets is missing its anti-type. For each holy day, the type and the anti-type are alike in kind, depicting the same kind of event, but on a different order of magnitude. Even the last great day has its type and anti-type. I'm going to investigate this one a little bit more detail, as I said, because before, this, before coming this way, I had never heard of the last great day. So let's look at several scriptures describing the last great day. Uh, how about the idea of them being temporarily resurrected, getting up and walking around for a while, huh? That was bizarre for me. All right, John 7, verses 37 through 39. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But he spake this of the Spirit, which uh, they that believed on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus had not yet been glorified. Okay, so we've got Jesus identified as a source of living waters in that one. Zechariah 14, 8 through 9. And it shall be in that day, the living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be and the Lord shall be king over all the earth and in that day there shall be one Lord and his name shall be one. This is Zechariah looking forward to the millennial reign. In Revelation 21 verses 5 through 7 and he, sat, and he that sat on the throne said behold I make all things new 
And he said unto me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Notice again that we've got here the um, rivers, uh, the, the fountain of life, and the life-giving water in the millennial rain flowing out from Jerusalem, and that's parallel to Jesus calling himself the, uh, the fountain of living water as well. Matthew 27, 50 and 53. Jesus, when he cried out with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent uh, in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth quake and the rocks rent and the graves were open and many bodies of the saint which slept arose and they came out of the graves after the, his resurrection and went to the holy city and appeared to many I had never known that this is the first zombie apocalypse I guess right okay actually that's not true because they were resurrected anyway um, Revelation 20 verses 12 to 13 and I saw the dead small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death had held delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. Again, do you notice again the parallelism between the type and the antitype? It is similar in kind. Similar in kind. So why would all of the whole other holy days have a type and an antitype and trumpets not have its antitype? Somehow, that violates the elegance, the beauty, the pageantry of the holy days for me. Maybe it's just that OCD mathematician in me, but I really need that last component to complete the pattern so clearly established in the holy day cycle. And for years, I've listened attentively for the archetype uh, the antitype to the uh, last trumpet in Christ's glorious return to complete the pattern that was evident in the cycle of the Holy Day. But the pulpit has been largely silent about it. We know that the celebration involves the blowing of two single-piece silver trumpets. Uh, Numbers 10 th 2 says, Make the two trumpets of silver of a whole piece shall you make them that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. Note that these were not ordinary um, trumpets of sounding brass, but were ceremonial silver trumpets made for, from a single piece of silver or purest tone, then, uh, the kind that's used for pageantry. We know when the day of trumpets occurs. Leviticus 23:24 says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets on the uh, and, and a holy occasion that would make it Tishri one by by the Judaic calendar. Uh, also, Numbers uh, twenty nine one and in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work. It is a day of blowing of trumpets unto you. Now. We know that the memorial, this is a memorial of the blowing of trumpets, and it's incumbent upon all of us as an ordinance forever throughout our generation. It's not just for the ancient Israelite. Numbers 10, 8 through, Numbers 10, verse 8 tells us that. 
And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall be for you an ordinance forever throughout your generations. Further, there has been much speculation about the meaning of the two trumpets, but none of the explanations I've heard has, been the, has had that satisfying sense of elegance in the other holy days. So I asked myself, self, when are trumpets used? And I answered myself, self, trumpets are traditionally used in battles or assemblies and to announce the arrival of dignitaries and kings. Wouldn't the sounding of a ceremonial trumpet be most appropriate to herald the arrival of the king of kings once as a babe in a manger and again as a returning conquering messiah? Yes, I am, asking, I am suggesting that the most appropriate antitype to Christ's second advent, returning to earth in power and glory, is his first advent. As a, as a humble birth in a lowly st stable. However, as I said at the beginning, there is no mandate that Christ had to be born on a holy day. But, so we fill in the last piece up here, the, what I'm arguing here is that the antitype is Jesus' birthday. That was deliberately concealed to prevent it from being subjected to astrological. Um, however, just suppose, just suppose that he were born on the Feast of Trumpets, Tishri 1, a new moon, a night of darkness made bright with angelic glory. The Day of Atonement occurs on Tishri 10, allowing just enough just enough time between his birth and the day of registration for eight days to pass, for his circumcision to be formed, and to have one day of healing to occur. Because let's face it, circumcision be hard on even the God child. Then Christ would have been registered with the house of Joseph of the tribe of Judah and the family of David from the very first day for which he would have been eligible. Further, his being born on trumpets in no way nullifies his coming to, coming to tabernacle with us on Tishri 15. In fact, that would make his keeping the Feast of Tabernacles one of the very first things he did, even as a babe in his mother's arm. There's an elegance, I say, about how well the timeline fits. Therefore, both the typology and the timeline sync up so perfectly that the Feast of Trumpet is the only holy day, again, it doesn't have to be a holy day, it's the only holy day fitting the time period occurring after the summer harvest but before the Day of Atonement. Typologically, Trumpets is consistent with its birth and the duality principle that each holy day pictures an early event and a later event. This principle of the, the duality demands that the pictured events are alike in kind, and they are alike in kind because they're coming, uh, uh, both of them pictured the coming of a king. Clearly, the blowing of trumpets in Revelation is the herald of Christ's second event. If he were born on trumpets as well, we would have a typologically matching event in his first advent. These two advents would then be pictured uh, be in the blowing of the two silver trumpets, the ceremonial trumpet, which marked this day. Two heralds, 
by the way, both of which come from angelic hosts, announcing the arrival of the King of Kings. Happy birthday, Jesus. <laughs>